Hi, everybody. Welcome to Producing the Beatles, the podcast dedicated to exploring the untold story of producer George Martin's revolutionary collaboration with John, Paul, George, and Ringo. I'm your host, Jason Krupa, and this is part two of our look at John Lennon's trio of revolution recordings. In part one, we looked at the making of Revolution 1 and Revolution 9. If you haven't listened to that one yet, go back and catch up before you listen to this episode to make sure you get the full story. Today, we'll look at the faster, electric guitar-driven version of Revolution that was released on a single with Hey Jude. On the face of it, the Revolution single seems like a pretty straightforward recording, but the Beatles were always pushing to try something new, and this track was no exception. This resulted in an unusual setup for recording the basic track, which goes against the grain of what we expect of such a live-sounding song. There are other things to consider here, too, and we have a lot of guests this time to help us out. We'll sit down with guitarist, keyboardist, and composer Casey McAllister to look at a key element of this version of the song. We'll talk with the author of the Beatles recording reference manuals, Jerry Hammock, about that distinctive guitar sound. And former New York Times music critic Alan Cozen picks up where he left off in part one to discuss how all three recordings named Revolution form a kind of trilogy that traces John Lennon's feelings about the idea of revolution. So join us as we look at the making of the Revolution single on this episode of Producing the Beatles. After Paul and George deemed Revolution 1 too slow for a single release, the first order of business was to record the song at a faster tempo. To emphasize the intensity of the message, John stripped this new arrangement down to two electric guitars, bass, and drums. It needed a rousing kickoff, though, and the intro on the final recording bears an uncanny resemblance to this. That's a song called Do Unto Others by blues guitarist Pee Wee Creighton, recorded in 1954. As far as I can tell, John never mentioned this song in an interview. So did the Beatles know this record? I'm mostly concerned with production on this podcast, but this particular point about the intro has bugged me for years, and I wanted to look a little closer. I'm, uh, I'm Casey McAllister. I'm a musician uh, and film composer. I work with the Ross Brothers, and I do a lot of work with Langhorne Slim, Peter Murphy, some New Orleans bands. The knee-jerk reaction when you hear the Pee Wee Creighton clip is, the Beatles ripped this off. But I wanted to get Casey's take on this, since he has a working musician's perspective on blues, R&B, and early rock and roll. I really think of it as like curation in a way. I'm sure John love that intro and I don't think he was like okay for this song I'm gonna rip that off but he had to have bookmarked it that's cool mm -hmm. that's in his head you know and then that's gonna be available to be pulled out at any time and then he pulls it out there you know even though they changes it a little bit at the end with the note change but otherwise it's almost identical um, even in the tone like the tone is real similar 
You like the sound of that. You've been carrying it around. He changes it a little bit. And then, you know, people today, I guess, will listen to that and be like, oh, man, he ripped that off, you know? And that is easy to jump on. And I guess depending on how you look at it, it's true. But that's no. the way you communicate. Old blues songs all did that, you know? Well, in any folk music, that's the case. Old hillbilly tunes in New Orleans, I think we know a lot about that. With any kind of eight bar, it's essentially Loberta or, you know, T Nana, whatever. It's like all that is, they're not trying to hide that they got this from that, you know? And I think the Beatles picked up that spirit, just like a lot of other people. And also, rock and roll wasn't such a precious thing at that time. I think the idea is say something new about it, you know? Like, bring something new to this conversation if you're going to take part in it. But maybe there's a bigger picture here. Have a listen to the intro of Revolution 1 with the electric guitar part that was overdubbed on June 21st. And now, listen to it sped up to the approximate tempo of the single version. Except for the drum breaks and the scream, this is pretty similar in character to the intro of the single version. And there's more. Here's the guitar solo for another Pee Wee Creighton record called You Know Yeah. So is this simply a straight lift from Do Unto Others? Or was John instead drawing on the larger vernacular of electric blues. I do think it had to be vernacular to a degree. Yeah, that's a way to start a thing, you know, whether it's on saxophones right. or whether it's the drummer starting it off, you know, that folk music thing of when it's a pitched instrument, such as guitar, you know, it's him turning around to the, it's instead of going one, two, three, four, it's Pee Wee turning around to the band saying, this is how we're gonna do this. And then the drummer catches on. And then they're off into the song. So it's a functional thing, more so than a stylistic thing. The Beatles were always pretty open about their influences, so it's odd that John never mentioned this Pee Wee Creighton record. We may never have a definitive answer one way or another, but wherever you land on this, it's further evidence of the Beatles' extensive musical vocabulary. Last episode, we talked about avant-garde composers, and this episode, it's American blues artists, all in reference to ideas spun from a single John Lennon song. This electric version combines the best of both previous versions, the music and lyrics of Revolution 1 and the chaotic energy of Revolution 9. But it took a bit of work to get there. While assembling the 50th anniversary box set of the White Album, the production team discovered part of a rehearsal, which captures the song a little faster than Revolution 1, but still sounding pretty relaxed. Once they reached escape velocity, there was the matter of the guitar sound. When we think of distorted electric guitar, we think of an instrument plugged into an amp cranked up to 11. Here's an approximation of what that would sound like. This is an Epiphone Casino, like the one John played on the recording, plugged into the same model of amp John used on his Plastic Ono Band album, a Fender Vibrochamp, turned all the way up.
that has something of the tone of a 50s electric blues record, or even the intro to Revolution 1. But that wasn't enough. John wanted more. Now, he could have run the guitar through a fuzz pedal, much like Paul had done back in 1965 with his lead bass overdub on Think For Yourself. But they'd already done that, and the Beatles didn't like to repeat themselves. This had to be a new sound. George Martin would later recall that the technical people at Abbey Road were unhappy about the solution for this guitar sound. But Martin said, quote, that was the idea. It was John's song, and the idea was to push it right to the limit. Someone, maybe one of the Beatles, maybe George Martin, but most likely one of the recording engineers, came up with the idea of plugging the guitars directly into the recording desk. This is called direct injection, or DI. I asked author and producer Jerry Hammock, who is a guest on our sixth episode, back to explain how this technique usually works in the recording process. In modern recording, of course, when you're doing a DI signal, usually it's to complement a signal that you're also taking through an amplifier. So, you know, very common uh, DI configuration would be like on a bass, where they'll do a DI pull of the bass part and they'll also have it amped. So when when you're mixing this, you have a way of bringing in a very clean, articulate signal against what is going to be perhaps a little more distorted or have have different EQ characteristics with what's coming through the amp. So yeah, clean is typically the way you go with DI, but the Beatles had different ideas. Paul had already recorded his bass this way at least twice in 1967 on Only a Northern Song and Blue Jay Way. But we're talking guitars here, and one early example of a DI guitar is Mr. Tambourine Man by The Birds from 1965. That guitar sounds a little distorted, probably from how the engineer compressed the sound. But as Jerry says, the typical sound of an instrument plugged directly into the mixing board is a clean one. After all, every recording engineer is trying to get a clean signal onto tape. The sound will vary from studio to studio and mixing board to mixing board. But if you've spent any time listening to pop and rock music from the last 50 years, you've heard plenty of clean guitar recorded via direct injection. But the Beatles didn't want clean, and besides, those two examples, and most examples of DI guitar after the 1960s, even the distorted ones, were played through solid-state mixing desks, not tube desks. The Red 51 console that they recorded through, part of it is made up of these desk amplifiers, and they were Red 47 uh, desk amplifiers. If you've ever been around uh, tube amplifiers, which is essentially what we're talking about here, they put off a lot of heat. But essentially, these were amplifiers, like a guitar amplifier. You could look at it that way. So they had uh, three levels of gain. They had uh, 34, 40, and 46 decibels of gain that could be selected. And then they had another control, like a trim control, where you could push any of those gains or diminish. So kind of a fine control of the, of the trim level of those gains. 
the Beatles, when when Lennon and Harrison decided not to use amplifiers, but to just go into the board, what they assuredly did was initially push that Red 47 amplifier to its highest gain, which was 46 decibels, and then they cranked the trim as well. So now you've got a full-on distorted signal, just like you would if you turned your amp up to 11. It was as simple as that, overloading an amplifier, a tube amplifier that happened to be built into the board, not external. The Beatles had tube amplifiers, though. So what was different about these amps in the mixing boards at Abbey Road? And how did this process affect the sound of the guitars? There's a further element to those red amplifiers. They had a rumble filter built into them. So a rumble filter is going to attenuate the low end of the signal. In an amplifier, you'd have to dial those things out. You're typically not going to have a, a super clean distorted signal. But when there's a rumble filter involved, that now attenuates some of the low end that causes that mud and then gives you that super clean tone. When uh, you're recording a typical guitar amplifier, there's three pieces in the signal chain that aren't there with the way the Beatles solved this problem. You have the speaker itself, you have the microphone, and now the microphone going into the preamp of the console. So those are three pieces that are not in the way with what the Beatles did, which translates completely differently sonically. This made for an unusual scene during the recording session for the basic rhythm track. On the evening of July 10th, John, George, and Paul were in the control room of Studio 3, each plugged into the recording console. Even though Paul would tape his bass part later as an overdub, he still played along, unrecorded, on these basic takes. Alone, down on the studio floor, Ringo was at the drums, mic'd up as usual. That was the end. Still recording on 4-track, the guitars went on tracks 1 and 2, and the drums on track 3. On to track 4, they overdubbed another snare and some hand claps. This filled the four-track tape, so they did a reduction mix, combining the guitars onto track one and the drums and hand claps onto track two. John then added two tracks of vocals, one sung straight through, and the other as a kind of off-kilter punctuation on parts of words and phrases. It's so unusual and seemingly random that it creates an element of surprise all throughout the song. You say you'll change the Constitution, well, you know, we all want to change your head. You tell me it's the institution, well, you know, you better free your mind instead. This filled the available tracks yet again, leading to another reduction mix, the second for this recording. 
The next overdub was the electric piano solo by Nicky Hopkins, played simultaneously with another distorted guitar part by John, recorded the next day on July 11th. This filled the four-track tape again, leading to a third reduction mix to make room for one final overdub, Paul's bass. With recording complete, they mixed the song to mono on July 15th. Some of you may have read in the notes for the White Album's 50th anniversary box set that the recording was sped up a semitone in mixing from the key of A to B flat. But in analyzing the available outtakes in session chat, I found no evidence of this. Revolution was mixed and released as recorded without any speed manipulation. Setting that point aside, this mono mix is the one John preferred, and it really does pack quite a punch. So much so, that some record buyers in 1968 weren't ready for what they heard. Some fans found it so distorted that they thought there was something wrong with the record. Paired with Hey Jude, this recording would be released on August 30th, 1968, followed on November 22nd by the release of the White Album, which contained two more recordings titled Revolution, Revolution 1 and Revolution 9. In at least one interview, John half-jokingly referred to the single version as Revolution 2, acknowledging how it was positioned conceptually between the other versions. This brings us back to Alan Cozen and his overview of how these recordings create a kind of trilogy. Okay, so when you look at the finished set of pieces, what you've got is Revolution 1, where it's acoustic, it's slow, it's John thinking about revolution in prospect. You know, what are we talking about here? He's asking questions. If you talk about destruction, you can count me out, or maybe you can count me in. I don't even know yet. He's sort of still thinking about what a revolution's going to be, what a revolution could be, maybe what a revolution should be, but, you know, there's all this talk of revolution, and that's what he's dealing with here. You know, where does he stand? He's still asking himself in a way get on to the single, now it's electric, it's distorted guitars, it's kind of gives the sense of being urgent and dangerous and about to happen and really just sort of exploding. And now John knows that when you talk about destruction, you can count me out. He's decided that much, but he's still sort of like carried along by the energy of the whole concept. And then, you know, he still has some doubts about 
what a revolution is going to be. And he was a big reader of history and uh, historical analysis. So he probably knows that the French Revolution was to some degree a disaster. It had great ideals, but a lot of people were just guillotined for no reason, uh, you know, other than that the people who had the power after the revolution didn't like them. The Russian Revolution, you know, similarly, there's there's a, a lot of bloodshed that is entirely adjacent to the actual issues that the revolution's being fought over. So he's now painting a portrait of basically a society or a world collapsing in on itself under the pressure of the revolution happening. It's eerie, it's uh, a bit scary, it's dangerous, even more dangerous than the single version of revolution, and I think that's the sort of three-panel portrait of revolution he's showing us. In recent episodes, we've talked about periods where the Beatles took over the studio and where George Martin found himself sidelined in one way or another. Here's Jerry Hammock again. They learned a lot from the Pepper era and the Magical Mystery Tour era. They learned so much that when you get to the White Album, it's almost like you've got you know five George Martins now. They've been to boot camp. They've learned how to think about creating sounds, and their teacher was Martin. Now they've taken that learning and they're applying it, and you know certainly they didn't need him as much because he was in their head. But for our next and final episode of this season, we'll be looking at a recording where Martin's involvement was critical, from a time where he and the Beatles were operating in perfect harmony. Thanks for listening. Producing the Beatles is written, directed, edited, and produced by me, Jason Krupa. Thanks to Alan Cozen for his perspective on the Revolution recordings, and to Casey McAllister for discussing that guitar intro with us. A special shout-out to Rory Calais, who demonstrated what the Revolution intro sounds like through an overdriven guitar amp, and to Ben Lorio for recording that demonstration for us. Also thanks to Jerry Hammock for helping us understand how the Beatles got Revolution's memorable electric guitar sound. Later this year, Jerry will be releasing a new volume, Volume 4, of the Beatles Recording Reference Manual, covering the year 1968, so you can find out more details like we discussed today, not just about Revolution, but about the rest of the recordings on the White Album as well. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at PT Beatles, and for more information, including show notes and references, be sure to visit our website, producingthebeatles.com. You can also find our email there if you have questions or comments. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to rate us on iTunes and let everyone know about us every way you can. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to us using your favorite podcast platform. <laughs> ¶¶